The time is 6.27pm. And welcome to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I'm Ian Tiny Morris. And I'm Simon Sansbury. <laughs> so, it's been a bit of a week. Yeah, it's all gone on, hasn't it? So, your birthday last Sunday and then all the way through to Father's Day today. And yeah, it's all gone on. Indeed. And we've got a hectic, a hectic show. So, we're going to crack straight on with it. Like, yeah. you know, like professionals. Mm, only a bit like professionals. A bit like we're... professionals. Yeah. 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 Um, so. Yeah. So, we're going to crack straight on. So, um, we've got three guests lined up this evening. Um, so we've got Alex Dutton of uh, Portsmouth Party DJ and Pop Kids um, to talk to us uh, about the delay to the unlocking of the nighttime economy um, that um, Boris Johnson announced on Monday the 14th. We've got uh, David Fuller, who runs a care home in the city, to talk with us uh, about the government proposals to mandate that care home staff have to receive uh, two jabs of the vaccination in order to work in that sector uh, and we'll also be welcoming back to the show Matthew Winnington um, to talk to us about the proposals that the NHS will be sharing uh, sharing some patient data um, and you know whether we should be worried about that and actually what that entails so we've got quite a lot to quite a lot to get through with our with our three guests but before we did that we thought we'd also tackle between us because um, there's apparently there's some football thing going on at the minute. Yeah, it's the thing. So th this this is going to be one of the clunkiest conversations ever in the history of. of uh, so I understand sport, um, but I'm not a great footballist, and you you don't really get sport at all. So we'll, we'll but we'll give it our very best shot. So yeah, it is the Euro. It's the Euros, um, which should have happened last year in Turkey. Obviously, were held over. Was meant to be in turkey this year but they've still got covid issues so i'm a bit confused because they seem to have then spread it all across europe but i guess the story before the uh before the whole thing kicked off was the in the pre the pre-tournament friendlies the england team taking the knee in support of blm and the supporters response to that yeah, so um, so some players uh, took the knee, and in fact, the um, the England team uh, captain said that he wanted um, the players to be able to do that and wanted the the fans to be supporting that. And the FA also asked that that fans didn't uh, didn't boo that. And it seems to be pretty much a mark of our times that some things seem to be kind of really weaponized, and and some gestures um, or even words. It's one of those examples where. To one group of people, an action can mean one thing, but to another group of people, it's taken to mean something completely different. And I think, to me, this seems to be a situation where, um, you know, where um, some organisations are trying to claim that the the act of taking the knee um, in um, a, as a measure to to show um, sympathy with um, with black the, with the Black Lives Matter movement um, is something to do with some sort of you know, with the with the Marxist organisation or something to do with, um, you know, that sort of element of, of, of politics. But really, it's a statement against um, against racism. So, you know, I don't understand why anybody would really want to be against a statement against racism. And I think that's the you, you've you've kind of hit the nail on the head. It depends what taking the knee means. Mm -hmm. And it's that element of whether you, you know, if it's a you know if it is in support of a movement against you know for inclusiveness and equality and standing against racism then the vast majority would would support that uh, football does have a racism problem it has had for years you know there have been you know kick it out movement a few years ago it's been going on for years so there will always be an element of football supporters who would boo an anti-racism gesture you know particularly it's still rife in some areas of southern europe you know we've seen stories of some fairly poor behavior i guess the challenge is as to whether it's it, it is that or it is in support of a of a you know of a more political movement and there are many that kind of think that sport and politics you know shouldn't cross over i think we saw over you know, the last year, Marcus Rashford definitely taking a step between the two camps. So, you know, as 
as a white man, middle class man, I wouldn't boo anybody taking the knee. But I guess my question, and I'm still a sportsman, is you know, that I had to ask myself was, would I take the knee myself? And I was chatting about this with my eldest son, because he also is a sport mad person in team sport. And he said, well, it's a difficult one, because as a white man, I don't understand what the challenges are for, you know, somebody who's black. So his answer was quite simple, which was that if he was in a team and there were black players in the team for whom it mattered, he'd take the knee with them as a gesture of team solidarity. But if he was in a team that kind of, you know, didn't necessarily feel that, then he wouldn't. And I thought that was a pretty reasonable approach to, you know, almost that I'm happily support you, I'll ally with you, but it's not it's not really my fight, which I thought was an interesting perspective. I, I, yeah, I think I, I can understand that. I mean, I, I guess, um, and I'm sure someone somewhere is going to be going to accuse me of sounding woke now. Um, but I guess kind of part of the thing of, of the idea of solidarity and, and maybe I'm sound, starting to sound a bit like a member of the far left now, but the idea of, of solidarity with people is that you don't need to live their experience to understand that, you know, to, to appreciate their suffering, even if you don't fully understand it. And even just the point of saying, okay, I'm, I'm with this. So I think, yeah, I think, I, I think that for me, the, over, the overarching concern is look, let's be really honest whether whether a whether a football player takes the knee um uh you know during the during the national anthem or, or or whatever it's not affecting the match so you know if if what you're interested in is whether or not your team wins or doesn't um what what you know what difference does that make and why i don't understand why people would want to be so angry about it but i think somehow unfortunately they've been convinced that this thing that this bunch of multi-millionaires are going to be uh, supporting some sort of marxist ideology um and i think i think that's a bit crazy um yeah i, I don't think there are going to be too many marxists there was there was a lovely piece in uh, in last week's the skewer which is a fabulous podcast if you haven't listened to it where they cut in the fact that and it was football commentary and gareth southgate has been has selected and they listed some of the players but has remained loyal to and they cut in mao say tongue at the end which i thought was some um, was <laughs> parodying it in a perfect nature it, it is a thing but to kind of flip it on its head a bit and i i'm you know to use it as an example to some people flying the english flag or or even flying the union flag um is, is owned and i use use quotes yeah, um, yeah is yeah. owned by by some you know some racist people and used basically as an emblem that they're that they use as a, as a demonstration of their of their racism um but actually to most people those flags mean something completely different so oh, uh, as much as so i as don't as, think they do no i don't I, do they, do they I, I, th I think if you if I think a, a, a large proportion again part of it is that it, it becomes a construct I think if you see a house with the St George's flag hanging out of the windows uh, you know or a chap getting out of a white van with a shaved head and you know with a union flag hanging off of his white van i think the majority or not the majority but a sizable group of people will have unconscious bias that say he's obviously a racist i, I mean i personally I, I can't read people's minds so I, d I don't know but what i all i'm conscious of is that i check myself on if I, if i'm if i'm drawing that conclusion because at the end of the day lots of people are proud of their country and there's no, there's nothing wrong with that but i don't i think that it's right that um the the flag use of flag as, uh, being someone that's that's criticised overexcited uses of flags um, in 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 the past. Um, Didn't you have an EU flag in your window for a while? I did, yeah. yeah. Um, but, but as, as many people will tell you, <laughs> the EU isn't isn't a nation. Um, so I just I just think that look, flags mean different things to different people. Symbols mean different things to different people, and let's not allow. Um, emblems or symbols to be owned by uh, people that actually misappropriate them and use them for use them for for destructive or or um or reprehensible means coming back to kind of the thing about the knee um i'd rather people didn't boo but if they really want to boo their own team in front of an international game 
Um, okay, but I don't think th- I. I just think that a kind of stop and think is is the way to defuse the the um, the culture war as as it seems to seems that some people are quite happy to create and perpetuate. Yeah, no, I think it. Uh, I mean, it, it, it speaks, doesn't it, to 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 the. You know, we, we've we've talked before on this show about the football footballization of politics, and you know this is this is footballization in its in its purest form. You know, which is that, you know, do you do you cheer or boo? Well, I, again, I, I don't I don't quite get you know I don't get it, but well, I don't get it, but I get if people think that it is you know if it is some kind of political statement that's yeah doesn't fit with their own politics i can guess why they'd be a bit cross but there we go i'm not sure it's as we as we say i don't think there are too many there are too many marxist footballers i think there are no so um you know all all properties they're not the theft in their case they've got some very nice properties yeah so um calling time on um or blowing the whistle on on that conversation let's move on to our first guest so i'm going to welcome um welcome in david fuller um so our first question that we were looking at today so we we packed the show with with um with three other elements that we that we um that we welcomed actually some guests onto the show to talk about and this one is a, is about actually the government saying that it wants to that it wants to mandate for staff who work in care homes to actually have to ha- have to have had actually both vaccinations now the the plan i'll keep talking while i just allowed dave to kind of join us from a make sure he's with us audio and visually wise but just to kind of tee this up so the the government plan is that to hope that they're actually to have this measure in place evening david hello good evening everyone thank you for joining good evening. us um so i was just doing a brief a brief header to explain um explain what the what the situation is and then um, we'll come to you if that's all right to ask you how it affects you and what, what your thoughts are yeah so no problem at all. so the government at all want, wanting this to be in place for october obviously subject subject to it passing through parliament and at that point um care home staff will have 16 weeks to by which to have had their first and second jab and the three weeks after the after the second jab um in order to be able to continue to work in that sector if after 16 weeks they haven't had those then uh, basically they, w- they won't be able to be working in that sector but it also doesn't just include care home staff it also includes um, other subcontractors and voluntary sector work voluntary workers in those sectors and also includes people like um, ancillary staff like um, hairdressers for example that might come into homes um, and would be um, you know and, and um, in direct contact and being in indirect, indirect contact so it kind of affects those so david what's your where are you coming from in 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 this proposal from the government and what have you got to say about it yeah well first of all can i thank you for allowing me to come on your show as well it's uh, great to be here um yeah i mean great to do the homework as well son because i've been look at the uh, consultation um which was Thirteen and a half thousand people responded to a survey to the government. Uh, well, sorry, to the NHS, and that was from Stuart Miller, who uh, done the who's from Social Care Delivery. And basically, thirteen and a half thousand people were asked about their thoughts. And like you quite rightly said, um, if I can quote a couple of things from that report, it says, uh, thanks to the incredible efforts of people across the sector, over one point two million social care workers in England have now been vaccinated. This is a fantastic achievement and an important step to staff to protect themselves and their loved ones and the people that they care for becoming ill and terminally ill from COVID-19. And he goes on to say, while the majority of the care home workers have been vaccinated, only 65% of the adult or the older adult care homes in England are currently meeting the minimum level of staff uptake, indeed to reduce the risk of the outbreaks of a high risk setting, failing of a 44% of care homes, especially in London, uh, sustaining high levels of staff vaccination uh, in the future as people need to enter the workforce is important to minimise obviously the risk of any outbreaks. And he goes on to say in response to the consultation, the government will be bringing forward the regulations uh, and obviously CQC will make sure that they will be dealing with that how they, with that as well. And also, I, I, I take this statement uh, as, as, in fact, I think sums it all up. Care home workers 
have a duty of care to protect the people that they look after and have done a phenomenal job throughout the pandemic to reduce the risk of COVID-19 in these settings. Vaccination is a crucial part of this. And again, it goes on to say, unless, there are, uh, unless certain people are medically exempt, they would be expecting everybody to be vaccinated and give, like you said, 16 weeks for that to, uh, to happen. I mean, from my point of view, obviously, as you said that I do run a residential care home in Cosham. When this first happened, um, I was very, very surprised how quickly it spread through the care homes. And I witnessed it myself. And I've seen death many, many a time. And I've never, I think I lost five people, actually. I lost five people within a fortnight to COVID-19. And that was very, very, very shocking to me. And to see that was quite frightening. So I'm all in favour for people to have it. Yes, I mean, people should have a right and choice as well. But I'm afraid these people are very, very vulnerable. And uh, in this case, I feel that they should be vaccinated um, before they take employment uh, up in that field. And I guess, David, so my, my, my question would be in terms of, you know, again, it, it's an area where it is incredibly difficult to recruit mm. and, and to get, you know, the, the right people. Do, do you see that potentially having an impact? Um, well, yeah, well, again, for me, each week I have to notify the government how many staff I employed or what the staffing level is. If I employ anybody, um, have they been vaccinated? Have they had the first in vaccination? Have they had the second in vaccination? It's called the tracker, and that goes to central government. I'm lucky that uh, when I first said to people about doing the uh, vaccine or having the vaccine, I had one person who very much didn't want it to happen. She was very, you know, didn't want it to happen. I managed to talk her through it. And I said, I think this will, this, if you don't have it done, this would impact on holidays because you won't be able to go away on holiday. And as you can tell in the, in, in, on the news lately, they're saying now you've got to be vaccinated twice or they're talking about it before mm. you can go on holiday. So she soon went and had a, her second vaccine. But I mean, it is difficult. But, but uh, most of the majority of people that I sort of, really sort of interview at the moment are having um, the vaccine. So I'm quite lucky. No, which is great news. And it's an interesting one for me, David, because, uh, again, I think a lot of people, you know, that I've seen things in the press where they say, well, you know, this is unheard of mandatory vaccinations. Mm. But, you know, if you want to work as a surgeon, mm. you, you have to be vaccinated against hepatitis B. Mm. Um, if you are a laboratory worker in the NHS, you know, there are a number of vaccines that you have to have. Mm. Um, you know, again, I'd be interested in your perspective on, on why you think this has caused such a furore. Well, because obviously people have choice and rights. I mean, we're a free country uh, and, uh, you know, we, we everybody should have the choice to have it. I, I quite agree with that. I wouldn't like anybody. I mean, I hated needles. Trust me. I've got a phobia, phobic yep. needles. You and me both. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, but honestly, uh, for people out there that haven't had it, I mean, you, you don't, you don't realise you've actually had it, to be honest with you. Uh, uh, you know, I had a, a couple of uh, people, I had a couple of sort of aching arm the next day. But apart from that, you know, um, you know, apart from that, it was fine. Uh, but again, you know, it, it is a difficult one. But, you know, when I've seen it myself and then initially, I don't want to really talk politics on here, but initially when it did happen, when it first kicked off, we didn't have enough PPE equipment. Honestly, I was trying to get PPE equipment everywhere, gloves and basic stuff. I couldn't get it. And the poor residents, as I say, to see them uh, and to, for, for literally death to happen within, you know, 20 minutes, 25 minutes. And of course, uh, you know, no one likes talking about that sort of thing. But to see the undertakers to come and, and not allowing relatives to come into a room to yeah. see their poor person, which is in which which is late, you know, which is sort of in bed, you know, and you can't really uh, make them look presentable for a relative to come and see their their next of kin it's usually the last thing that you do but we mm. couldn't even do that we had to do one relative had to look through their poor mum for a window because they weren't allowed near the body so when you see stuff like that you know for me it's a big wake-up call and you know you've got to be vaccinated please 
Yeah, no, I, I, I'm I'm very pro-vaccination, and, and and for me, I see it very much in in the same style as PPE. You know, if, if we look at you know personal protective equipment is is about you know potentially protecting you from the patient and the patient from yourself. And I think what we've seen clearly, and the statistics are showing this, the most effective PPE that you can have is the vaccination. It makes yes. you less likely to carry a viral load, less likely to spread it. You know, it is. And I think you use the words um, duty of care to the people that you're looking after yeah. Yeah. Um, to to have that. And I, I think, you know, in terms of the, the, the civil rights angle, there is element that you still have a choice. Mm-hmm. Um, but in this in the same way, you know, again, I, back in the day, I, I, I worked in a laboratory and, mm-hmm. you know, the, the choice was you either wore the lab coat, the gloves and the safety mm-hmm. specs or you didn't work in the. You didn't work in the laboratory. That was the, that was the, if you like, the price you had to pay to to undertake the work. And I, uh, you know, that's yeah, I think you're quite right, Ian. When you say we've got a duty of care there, and um, I'm afraid if you want to do this sort of field and want to look after people, you've got to have the injection, the vaccination. If you don't, then go and find a job in KFC or somewhere else. I think is the only answer. It's um, yeah. I mean it's. I mean, obviously, it's um, it it will be an uncomfortable conversation for many for many people to have. There'll be lots of um, lots of workers that, for whatever reason, might feel um, might feel scared, um, and I and I can understand them 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 kind of being frightened about that. But mm. but it, it it seems to me that you know perhaps then the t- there's the time in the you know the timeline that the government's prospo- proposing. This isn't something that's happening next week. This is something no. that they're talking about happening from from October, uh, assuming it passes through Parliament. Um, the, um, so there's time in which to actually have the sorts of, you know, for, for their fellow workers and for their employers to sit down and have conversations to try to understand what their concerns are mm. or for medical professionals to address those concerns. And maybe they, that, that will be enough to allay their fears so that, you know, so that they they don't feel the the compulsion part of actually what the legislation tries to do. But in in some in some respects, it perhaps drives that conversation into that space of let's break down whatever those barriers um, may or may not be, because those those might be quite varied from um, from worker to worker. Um, yeah. But it was worth um one thing I did I did notice that the um so the RCN the Royal College of Nursing. Um, uh, Pat, um, Pat Cullen um, said that um, health and care staff must be supported to make an informed choice about taking the vaccine, and and it seems to me that that's that's kind of really important that, mm. that people are in a situation where they can take they can feel they can make a decision, they can make the right decision well um, mm. before it comes to the point that the, the legislation kicks in. Um, Unite um, uh, their their um, their statement was that they strongly opposes. Um, forcing any health and social care workers to, to have um, to have a vaccine. So, I guess it's that it's the power of that conversation and the relationship between the between um, the care home staff uh, um, and yeah. the managers, isn't it? Is that- I, I mean, I mean, I think you sit down with a member of staff. You would explain to them very clearly. You would try and get as much information as possible. It's been proven that, you know, people are not dying out there. I mean, every death obviously is traumatic, but, you know, it's proven that with the vaccine, you know, the chances of you passing on is very, very slim now, you know. So, you know, you know, you, you have to you have to weigh the pros and the cons about it. And I do understand it. It's something that I would ever, you know, I would never want to force it on anybody. I, and, and, you know, and I think it's terrible. But I think people should, you know, it's very simple. If they don't like it, they've got 16 weeks to find another job. Mm. And that's what well, more, yeah and again i was just i was i was just going through that in my just in my head you know we're we're in the middle of june it's you know it's end of october um you know there, there is a case now of if you are adamant that you're not going to get the vaccine then mm. and you currently work in the care in that sector it's time to start polishing your cv because you yeah. know ultimately you know that that, that you're not going to be working in the sector at the end of october um and you know i I look at that from the from from it coming into play coming into force so from that date this 60 so you're you're talking another four months from october so realistically yeah you know you're at the point where it's january next year before you're you're, so you know for, for me that's more than reasonable um i think you know ultimately 
you know, vaccination has shown to be the, the only realistic way out of this, yeah. you know, this pandemic. And, um, you know, my, my, my hope is that, well, I say I'm, I'm extraordinarily pro-vaccine. I, I see this as the start. I think, you know, it will start with care homes because they are the most, you know, their, their residents are the most vulnerable sector of society to this disease. Mm. But I see it moving very rapidly into the healthcare sector. You know, because if you, you know, again, if you look in QA, the majority of people that are in there, they're not folk in their 20s and 30s. You know, yeah. they are older folks. So I, I, I see this as the start of, of perhaps something a bit wider. And it is that point where you're right. It is about choice. But with, with choice comes consequence. That's it. You know, if you're not, it's like a surgeon, your heart surgeon, you know, he has to have certain degrees and know what he's doing. And I'm afraid, you know, you can't just go, anybody can just put their hands up and see, I can be a heart surgeon. But yeah. I know it's a bit extreme to this, but it's the same sort of thing. You know, you've got to have, you've got to have the injection, you've got to have the vaccination or, you know, you just can't take it up. And it's a shame, I know, but it's a, it's a difficult one. But for me, Certainly not, not now. You know, you either got to have it or you go and work somewhere else. It's as simple as that. Okay. It sounds very positive, David. Like, um, like your the your the staff have got on board with the with the uh, mm. with with the vaccination program, and uh, you know, yeah. hopefully, you, you won't have any issues going forward. Yeah, yeah. No, we've been very good. As I say, everybody in our home are fully vaccinated now, and any new resident that comes in. We have to put their name up and, and, and what for the government statistics, we have to make sure that they've had their second vaccine. Very well done now. You know, we've got, we say we've got our act together, the, the government or whoever has got, you know, we've got plenty of PPE equipment. We're moving on now. You know, there are very stringent tests when people knock the door. If you want to visit your mum, you have to have the half hour test, you know, to make sure that that's all clear. Uh, district nurses, when they come in, they have to be self-tested as well. Before they come in, I can ask them to show me their test before I allow them in the building. It's a bit like Fort Knox. You can't allow anybody in at the moment because, you know, obviously you don't want it to spread again. So, oh. um, you know, but please, God, hopefully, um, you know, Everybody, by the sounds of it, the younger people are taking up now uh, and having the vaccine. It's good to see on the news yesterday that I can't remember how many people, but 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 it, but it filled up all the uh, you know well, they're having the injections. So, so that's that's good. A lot of people taking that up. Okay. Well, thank you very much for for giving us that view of the care home. I'm sorry, it's a whistle stop tour as we kind of race through our our packed show um, this evening. But um, but thank you so much for for joining us, David, and, and giving us that that view from the industry. Yeah, and thank you for having us here today. Thank you very much. You're more than welcome. Our pleasure, David. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, so um, that was a um, a good angle to take on that. So moving moving swiftly on, we've um, so the next subject that we were looking at was about um, the NHS um, wanting to uh, wanting to share data. Um, so. Um, I'm just going to bring in so to join us on that subject. We've got um, we we've got Matthew Winnington joining us. So um, we'll um, viewers to the podcast will know that we um, that we've had Matthew on before, um, both um, in his previous role as the um, uh, as the cabinet member for health well um, well being and social care on Portsmouth City Council, um, but also obviously he took part in the in the hustings that we had just before the local elections. So. Um, we um so we've got matthew wanted to, to talk about that and just to kind of briefly summarize that hopefully while matthew gets his um gets his audio sorted we've um so the proposal here is that um is that the data that um, gps have collected um the proposal is that that's actually shared for um research purposes it's not like they're selling it to insurance companies but the the data that's shared is um um not anonymized but it's pseudomized i think is the term that they've used but so basically it's stripped of your name your date of birth um your location and your full postcode so uh, it sounds like a partial postcode but it does contain things like your medical history um test results um sexual preference um and, and some other kind of things so hopefully matthew can kind of give us a bit more information about this and whether this should be the big scary big brother thing that we should be worried about or is this an intelligent use of data in order to help uh, and help help our healthcare system treat us more effectively so good evening Matthew. Uh, good evening and uh, really good to be here again. Welcome back. 
Thank you. Um, so, uh, so yeah, th thanks for the introduction there, Simon, in terms of the, uh, the, the purpose of the data. And indeed, uh, they, it is regarded as pseudonymization as opposed to anonymization, um, because it does just uh, the um, information that, that they're looking at sharing um, is things that if you really, really worked at it, you could figure out who, who the person is, mm. uh, because some of the data involved would, would include that. To start with, I think it's 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 really worth saying um, that the reasons why the government and the NHS are saying they're going to do this, I think, are entirely um, understandable. That they want to be able to use people's data to um, plan for future healthcare needs. Uh, they want to plan for, as I say, for future things like future pandemics, um, and they also want to be able to. Um, uh, be able to respond and understand uh, what the what the uh, health uh, health situation in the country is at the moment, uh, and also um, and, and they've been very clear as well that they they would look they would look at, at having this information being available for um, uh, for better uh, ability to uh, to do research into future cures for uh, diseases, uh, future medical research, etc. Um, I think where the real issue has come in on this um, is the fact that the um, uh, that the data sharing is an opt out. So um, for those of you uh, who are watching, who might be aware of the General Data Protection Regulation, which was a European directive that came in a couple of years ago. It's three years ago, actually. Now it's 2018, uh, which was the UK government have incorporated into British law, so it's still law in this country, and they made it very clear that they're not going to be repealing that, uh, and indeed that that will continue to be part of British law. Um, but that's very much an opt-in. So when you go onto your website, when, you, when you're when you asked, if you remember back before GDPR came in 2018, you would often have, you know, you'd have a website and they'd say, we'll share your data unless you say you don't want us to. The way around it is now is that you get asked, do you want to share your data? And yep. if you say, you know, and so you don't share your data unless you say, I want to share it. And so the particular consternation on this has been the fact that the government and the NHS are looking at this as a, we're, we're going to share your information and your data unless you say you don't want to. So it's an opt out, which seems a really strange way of doing it. And indeed, there's a there's a court case. So someone is suing the government that's basically taking this to, to court and saying, we think this is this is illegal. You shouldn't be able to do this. Does, does this not mirror Matt, some of the conversations around organ donation that, that, you know, there has long been a conversation about presumed consent and opting in and opting out. And it's that element of if people are required to opt in even if they think it's a good idea and a good thing they'll never quite get round to doing it and in a similar way if this is an opt-in system you know if if not enough people opt in then the power of the data set to to make real change in the healthcare system is is undone yeah i i i i think that's it and um, but i i heard uh i and I, um, this was on about a week ago, um, maybe 10 days ago on Five Live, there was a head of NHS Digital, uh, who's actually a clinician himself. He's a, he's a doctor by background, but he's um, obviously worked in the, um, worked in the, in the sort of data collection and, and presumably research area for a long time. And he made exactly that point. Um, but I think it's, it, it, it really sits very uncomfortably with the fact that in every other area, of data usage it, and and actually on the the nhs itself has said we realize the data belongs to you it's your data <clears throat> um so but but that sits uncomfortably say so it's your data but you don't really have control over it because instead of us asking you asking us will you allow us to use your data they're saying we're going to we're going to use your data unless you say no um, and of course, so many people even now have no idea that this this data is going to be um, that their their own data is going to be used, um, because the whole point of GDPR and the whole point about this kind of understanding of data is that over years people's data has been 
used by organisations, especially commercial organisations, let's be honest, in ways that people, if they'd known, would never, ever have given permission to do so. And, and it's just been, you know, you have to tick to say no. So it, it changed, the, changed the way that people understood data rather than it being your data's theirs, and, but then you have some control over it if you say, no, I don't want you to use it. Um, but, you, but they would use it otherwise to turn it around to actually you have control of your data and actually it's yours until you give such permission to say you can use it elsewhere. Um, so I think I think this is where the real the really uncomfortable nature of it is. As I say, I think it's they're looking at it for completely the right reasons, but I think there is this real dichotomy between whose data is it. They say it's your data, but then they're going to use it unless you tell them they can't, rather than that's your data, and then you can give us permission for us to use it. The reality no. is, and I, and I think one of the one of the um, one of the things that most people, because actually most people, when they're asked, you know, when you go onto these websites in post GDPR, is when you're asked, can we use your data for this? Most people say, yeah, that's fine. So I actually think the uh, the fear that the NHS have is unfounded, but they're doing the path of least resistance, but potentially this could lead to them losing in court and therefore they'd have to do that anyway. Yeah, I, I, for me though, Matt, is is it not a little bit of monsters in the shadows? You know, there is an element of, uh, again, if I if I look at it today, most people, yeah, most people are on social media. They're sharing data. They're sharing details. Um, you know, and again, they're effectively feeding the evil algorithms that are then popping into your feed. Oh, so I understand you were thinking about buying a garden flamethrower, which they did to me the other week, and I don't know how they knew that. <laughs> but, um, but, um, but yeah. So, so the, the, that's one thing. And it, is it isn't it very different to? And I know it's not fully anonymized, but there's an element of the kind of people that are going to get this data and try and do something with it. The power of the data is in, in hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of records to to paint an algorithm, to paint a picture, to predict, uh, you know, future health issues, you know, whether they could in theory get Simon Sansbury's data and piecing together all the lewd detail of it, trace it back to him. Is that a real risk or is that one of these abstract perceived risks that you kind of uber libertarians get afraid about? No, I, I, and I, I don't think, I don't think that the the data security of um, of the data is an issue. Um, to be honest, I, I'm in my day job um, working for uh, working for Silent Minds. I I I use um, patient record data as part of my job to to support the the, the clients and carers that we that we support in my uh, in my service, and the it is a very, very secure system. I mean, yeah. and, and this is the thing. And, and, and the inter, the, the interact, I, I don't have any particular issue with data security. I mean, when you hear about data breaches with the with central government, it's normally because some, some functionary has left a laptop on a train or something like that. Um, the, and, and the, uh, and the investment in, uh, in uh, cyber security has been immense by government. It's one of those things that, um, you, you know, when you compare it with other other parts of the world where you actually hear quite a bit, I think there was an American system that was hacked mm. and, and huge, huge amounts of data security was done. Um, uh, it, it very rarely happens. And actually, the, the you know, from personal experience, knowing what you have to go through to get access to people's patient data is, is, is you know, it's very secure. You have to have smart cards and all this kind of stuff. And, 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 and the the uh the the stuff that's the 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 system they've got i i don't have i don't think that's that's an issue i think it's just down to that it's just down to um the the fact of whose data is it and the rather than and and the problem is of course is but that no one knew about this until uh, just a few weeks ago and I think this was the this was the biggest thing because it was kind of oh we'll just kind of 
hope it goes through. Of course, now it's been delayed because originally it was going to be, um, I think it was going to be, um, yeah, it was going to be this this coming Wednesday that the deadline would have been. Yeah. Uh, and now that deadline has been put back to um, to the 1st of September. Uh, but we don't know whether the 1st of September is, well, this, that's when they say it's going to go live and, and how long before you have to get in this form, uh, which you have to fill in to say, I don't want to be part of the de- uh, this data sharing if you don't. Okay. On a personal level, um, I I have no no issue with my medical data being used for the purposes it's had because I understand the benefit from it. Mm. But I would have liked to have been in the position to say, we would like to use your data record. Would you like to give it to us rather than we're going to use your data records. And then if you say that, so I'm not going to say, no, I'm not going to opt out because I, I, for exactly the reasons you say in, I do think that the, the, uh, the reasons why they, they want to use this data is entirely legitimate and really Mm. important. Um, but I, I also know people who are opting out, um, uh, are have have their reservations um and i also understand that um uh, the the other thing that people don't like is even if you do opt out anything that's being collected up until the point that you do is still usable so it's not a i don't want my data shared at all um because everything pre when you say no so i think it's right that if you say no now before it starts that's fine but once once it's come in yeah. and you yep. say no, everything you've had up until that point is still usable, but then after it the afterwards da- isn't. The, so the data, um, if you opt out after it's gone live, the data isn't refreshed. Basically, they the, the, the yeah, data set that's right. Re- yeah. So so answer. if I if I decided on Christmas Day this year that I d- I'm, I'm going to opt out, I'm going to do my form, I'm going to hand it into my GP surgery and say I don't want to be part of this everything up until that point would be usable mm-hmm. it's just whatever happened afterwards wouldn't be um I, and i think again this is one of the issues that people are not particularly happy with is that um if if, if you're not known as being um as having this um if you don't know about it and then you do it afterwards um and of course this could be you might not be in a position to be able to you might be too young for example so mm. Um, because I think you can do this when you're 18. I think I'm not. I'm not entirely sure about that. Yeah. So, uh, um, but but you would say, but all your childhood records effectively would be accessible until such point as you say. But a, a parent or guardian could um, could um, make that opt out on your behalf ahead of ahead of that point. Yeah, I I I, I believe right? so. I'm not entirely sure about yeah. that. I think that would be worth that. That would be. Um, that's an area I haven't mm. I haven't looked into um, too much, mm. but um, but yeah, it, it that is uh, uh, that is that is mm. something that is so, um, so 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 let's take a hypothetical. Say if there was a data breach and there was a scandal of some description, uh, whereby say I, I I don't expect there will be, but say if there was, um, you could you could get a situation whereby lots of people then decide right I'm having no part of this. But then all the data from prior to that would still be available for the, the NHS to share uh, and, and use. Yeah. So it, um, it, it sounds. Like, yeah, sorry. Um, I'm just conscious of it. I, I, I wanted to kind of make sure that we we, we we get through this. I know it's it's tight for us to kind of fit it all into time, but it's. So I mean, like you like yourself, when I looked at this, I kind of thought my 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 instant reaction was hang on a minute I, I don't want my i don't want my information shared but then when i went and looked at actually what the what the nature of the information it was that was being shared um and who and the, the sorts of organizations that it would be shared with and for what purpose and the steps they have to go through you know they, they have to make a case that they, they actually should have access to this data um and um in order in order to be able to have access to it um i'd rather that scientific bodies and research you know research bodies had access to that sort of data um you know if that kind of flagged up some sort of issue from whatever their whatever their analysis work shows out that perhaps i have a predisposition for a particular type of illness and therefore they go back to the um, the data controllers in the nhs and say you know this this record can you contact this patient because we need you, you need to get them to come and have a test for xyz um, to me, that sounds like a, a a benefit rather than actually something I'd I'd be uh, I'd be frightened of. So personally, I'm I'm not going to opt out either. But if people do want to, 
what what is it that they need to do i've shared the link by the way in in the comment section yeah. on the on the on the live stream yeah so it's it's you fill out the form so you print that off you fill out the form you take it you have to take it in you have to physically take it into your gp practice so it has to be physically signed and it has to be taken in physically to your gp practice not anywhere else it's your gp practice because effectively it's they're the ones who are sort of the custodians of your general data record you know, of, your, of your medical records so you take it into there and then then you will be opt out, uh, opted out as i say it comes in on the 1st of september they haven't made it clear how long before that you have to have that form in yet uh, but um the, when it was the old deadline it was about a week before that it would have come in so so if you want to get that done get it done probably by the middle of august just to be sure uh, you can take it in and it's it's you know and then 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 that's that's then done and yeah please if it if it's a uh, a minor or a, a dependent family member or whatever and you're not sure have a look at the um on gov.uk um and look up sort of uh, nhs data sharing it's got all the information you need there it's also if you're interested their justification for it so all the information as to why they say they're doing this uh, is all on that is all on there so um and and also i'd also recommend um full facts who are a fact checking um, organization uh, and they're really good uh, and they they just explain a bit more about exactly what it is so if you can make an informed decision and, and uh, but it but it is I, I think i would go with any fact checker organization and obviously seeing what the nhs says itself rather than you know some of the more hysterical um uh conspiracy theories let's be honest about that which 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 are out there so so because uh, my... there are there are plenty of independent fact checkers out there there are indeed yeah so rely on those sorts of sources of sources of information rather than my sister's auntie's nephew's dog um on facebook um they'll give you they'll give you a straight answer and as you say the nhs website does clearly lay out why they want that information and, and, and what it would be used for so Thank you very much. That's a really detailed um, and, and interesting subject, but like you say, not one that was well publicised until it kind of came up to the buffers and they had to extend it. So thank you for going through that with us, Matthew. And lovely, lovely to talk. speak with uh, you again, Matt. Thank you. Pleasure to be on again. You take care. Thanks. Thank you. Bye now. <sighs> that was me thinking now Bill Gates has put a chip in my arm and I can transmit by 5G. I didn't think we were going to need any of this. So, yeah, well... Who well, knows? There, there you go. So our third and final guest of, the, of this evening is um, Alex Dutton. So Alex uh, is from uh, Portsmouth uh, Party DJ um, and uh, Pop Kids. So he's come to talk to us um, uh, about the government decision to, uh, to delay the releasing of the lockdown measures. So they announced that on Monday um, and um, they've delayed that from uh, June the 21st to July the 19th. So good evening, Alex, and thank you for joining us. You're most welcome. Pleasure to be on. Thank you for having me. Thank uh, you. It's nice to it's nice to have a real professional performer on the uh, on the show rather than what I usually have to work with. <laughs> happy to help. Happy to help. <laughs> so, um, so tell us about um, how how this um, how this announcement has has affected you. What's what's that, how's that kind of hit you on the hit you on the ground sort of thing? Um, it's been another setback, to be honest, as, as most people could probably imagine at this point. Um, I mean, I. I sort of felt that I've been hit by both sides, like many people in sort of my situation. Um, not only am I a club DJ, so I have uh, I work with Pop World and Delight, which is a, a 20 year established brand. Um, I, I play in clubs over in Brighton. So not only do I have these sort of commitments that are obviously naturally booked in months in advance and, you know, knowing what you're doing and where you're going. So not only do these five shows a week get put back again, it's all the kids' birthday parties. It's the weddings that we fill in the rest of our diary with. It's the bouncy castle hires, the mascot visits, the ticketed events. It's all these just get further and further down the line. And with the government laws, a lot of these people want their deposits back. So we're constantly running over deposits and returning, filling up the diary. Oh, no, it's moved again. We've got to refund everyone and start from scratch again. It's, it's just a constant back and forth situation. And it's been like that for the last year and a half now. It's so if, a crazy position to be in. So if I look at next week, Alex, uh, you know, what what would a typical week in late June, early July look like for you, you know, as a working DJ? 
Uh, I would have been working Monday night at uh, Pop World for their alternative rock night. Uh, on a Wednesday, it'd be a student night called Purple Wednesday. It's been running about 15, 20 years once again. Uh, a Thursday, uh, it would have been a mobile gig, a wedding, a private function. Uh, a Friday, it would be a kid's party or a school disco in the afternoon and then down to Brighton for a club shift. Saturday during the day, we would do two kids parties back to back and then leading into another kid, uh, another club shift at Pop World in the evening. And then Sunday, we would do two kids parties once again and the process would then repeat week in, week out. Wow. In, in terms of finance, we're talking it's a couple of thousand pounds a week. And at the moment, we're, we, we should be trading from Monday, starting that routine, and we're not. You know, I'm sat here still not trading. I've got – I'm one of these people that I prefer to buy my own assets. I hate the, just renting it in. The way I see it, if I buy it, I've got it, I own it. I can use it as much as I want. Hmm. Um, I've got a warehouse down Fratton Road with about 50 grand's worth of production equipment in and CO2 cannons and bouncy castles, soft play, popcorn, candy floss, mo- you know, DJ setups, wedding setups, and I just can't touch it. I physically can't touch it. I've not been able to touch it for the last 16 months at this point. And I'm one of the lucky ones that's been able to survive the pandemic without having to sell my equipment. You know, they're, they're, there's a lot more people out there that are worse off than me that have actually had to sell up because they can't they can't keep holding on for this long. And so when you heard that announcement, you know, uh, were you surprised uh, or, or did you feel it was inevitable? Um, to be fair, I was hopeful all the way up, all the way up until about two days before. And then the heavy news stream on the BBC and Sky and the local papers and naturally Facebook and other social networks. If Sorry, mate, this is getting delayed four weeks. I think it got to that two days before and I started seeing that everywhere I looked. I was like, no, it's it's going to happen again. And I, I said to my business partner in our office, we, we started getting emails straight away two days before the announcement of, sorry, we know this is coming. We're going to cancel again. And we were just sat there in our office going, here we go again. This is this is March 2020 again, and all of our bookings are going to go, and we're going to be exactly where we was last year. So do you think it was a mistake to delay? I think so. I mean, if, if you look at it in terms of what they've been promising over the last, you know, X amount of time, it's been the vaccine is the way out here. The vaccine mm. is, is the chance to everyone to be able to get up, back and trade. And if you look at the process that's happened over the last year and a half, pubs have had the chance to open. Yes, they've reclosed, but they've had the chance to open. If you look at um, tattoo shops or hairdressers or, or a whole array of businesses, over the last 18 months, they've got to the point where they've at least been able to trial it, open it, regardless of whether they've shut down again. Hmm. The, night, the nightlife and the events industry is the only industry through the whole of the pandemic that has not been able to reopen. Categorically, we've not been able to do it. You know, if you look at live bands, for example, live bands have been able to perform on the outside um, arena. If you're somewhere like the Queen's Hotel, it's very safe. They have bands out there. However, the government put restrictions in for the DJs saying that we could not perform over 60 decibels for pre-recorded music. Where a DJ's class as pre-recorded music, we were not even allowed to go in and play to table service. We couldn't do anything. That rule has luckily changed now. Mm. However, during the height of it, that rule has only just changed and we have not been able to trade. And I understand why, but I think it's got to the point now where we should be allowed our chance and see what actually happens in the data. See if the fact that 80% of the country have got their vaccine, if that will actually be fine to run ahead and run a nightclub. The only way you're going to see it is, is by knowing. I, I guess the challenge there, Alex, and, and forgive me, it's been a long time since my frame darkened the doors of a nightclub. I'm guessing on Purple Wednesday, um, there aren't too many, you know, 50 plus, you know, the, I'm guessing it's a much younger demographic, you know, it, yeah, I don't know what nightclubs are like now, but I, I remember them being as a sort of seething, sweaty mass of bodies, and I'm guessing not much has changed there. I think every nightclub's different. Every nightclub has a different audience, a different look. You look at the Monday night alternative night 
our average demographic is age maybe 25 to 35. You look at a Wednesday, and you're very correct, it's a student night, you know, it, it, you are looking at 18 to 21, 22, you know, it's that early years. However, yep. you look at a Saturday in Pop World, for example, and I, I've been the resident there for four years now, and it is a complete mix. You get people on their very first night out that's just turned 80, and you get 60, 70-year-olds sitting in the booths, drinking and singing along, dancing to the music. It is honestly the biggest mixed group that you could imagine on a Saturday night. So every nightclub is different. And, you know, I think the, the data shows it itself. I looked um, when they've opened up to 18-year-olds now. You know, there was a backlog of people trying to get their vaccine. You know, within two weeks, it's going to be fine. There is no reason they should delay this again. They, they just shouldn't be able to. So, yeah, I mean, do you, do you think there's any particular reason why the why this why these sorts of industries because because some of them are quite fragile from a perspective of um uh, you know a lot of the people involved are fr you know are doing uh, freelance work or are doing you know you know set work for for particular gigs and, and venues so it's so it's not like it's a steady income stream or it's a steady kind of thing do you, it, it, is there a is there anything why this kind of particular part of the economy this particular industry seems to be falling foul of all of the other things that the the government have tried to do or, or the measures they've put in place to try to support what do you think? it's hard to say it really is hard to say to be honest with you i mean i i wouldn't know i mean if, if you look at the data i mean the, the nighttime industry accounts for billions in tax mm -hmm. every year you know we, uh, we we fund the government a lot you know to, to the tune of billions and billions and they should have helped a lot more. I mean, look at Deltic, who own uh, Prism and Eden. They went bankrupt um, during COVID and got bought out by a European brand called Ruckup, I believe they're called. You know, the, the government haven't helped a, a, a lot. And I don't know why it hasn't. And I don't know why they're scared to give us a trial. You know, you look at Liverpool, for example, where they've done the, the 5,000 people a night trial uh, in a nightclub. Only 12 people came out over, over both days, 10,000 people with COVID. The trial data was there. The trial showed that it was safe to give it a try. So why they put us back, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. It, it kind of almost, I, I don't know, and I, I, again, um, I guess it, you know, I, I'm neither here to try to find excuses nor kind of um, reasons for the government thinking. I can't read their minds, but it, it kind of almost sounds to me like uh, am I jumping? Am I jumping to conclusions to to suggest that perhaps they they don't understand how this part of the economy works and what its value is, and 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 who its customers are? A hundred percent. I mean, I, I can't see Matt Hancock has uh, has been to nightclubs recently. I, I don't think he knows the uh, the industry that well. I, I don't think most of the government will probably understand student or or nightlife culture. You know, I, I think you're a hundred percent right. If if they don't understand understand it, it's it's an unknown entity. They're, they're, they don't know what could happen when, when they go back to this. And I think you, are, you have hit the nail on the head there. I think they don't understand it. So they have just sort of left it in limbo and sort of tried to drag that process out as long as they can. So, sorry, Ian, go on. I think one point uh, is I think you're right that, that I, I can't see there being another delay. Do, do you have a, a, a sense of anticipation or optimism that – when you know let's let's say that the 19th isn't a false dawn that that you are going to be a very very busy man that sort of tuesday and thursday that you know, or the tuesday that you you get off that 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 might not be the case for the rest of the year do you think there is a a chance that that, that it will be a very busy rest of year for you i think it is i mean our, our diary is full up something rotten i mean yes we've had a few people cancel again uh, and had to refund again but the wedding season is in bloom. You know, the amount of weddings, I've never seen so many in our diary for the, for the rest of the year. You know, kids' parties, ticketed events. You know, we, we run a 90s rave night um, for children and kids. It's a family um, outdoor show. And people, we, we've sold out all summer shows in advance. And that's in Portsmouth, Southampton, Worthing. You know, people want to get out now. You know, yeah. and I think that as soon as, as, soon as that 90 happens... And I, I think it's going to be amazing. I think families can once again make memories and, you know, they can celebrate parties. They can celebrate weddings. I think that people are going to run straight to it and be booking something or going to their local clubs or local events and supporting these small businesses. And I'm very optimistic that, 
it's going to be a very good rest of the year as soon as they let us off. Sounds like you're champing at the bit there, Alex. Uh, honestly, I can't wait. I literally can't wait. I mean, I'm one of the lucky ones that's been able to go back and do um, a couple of shows recently. Um, but they are sit down, you know, and you don't get that same atmosphere, you know, fr from a DJ perspective. I'm used to being in the club playing to 500 people shoulder to shoulder yeah. to look at, look at 50 people segregated two and a half meters apart when they can barely sing or dance. Well, obviously they can't dance. They've got dance in their seat. You know, it's, it's a weird atmosphere as a DJ when you're used to them big atmospheric drive moments, you know, it's, it's just, it's a weird thing. It's a weird old thing. And I'm, as you say, chomping at the bit to get back to a, a, a sense of normality. I think like, like the majority now, Absolutely. Yeah, well, thank you ever so much, Alex. Um, that's been that's been great input. Thank you. You're most welcome. Thank you for having me on. Cheers, mate. Thank you. So you've been listening to the Pompey Politics Podcast. I've been Ian Tiny Morris, and our guests have been David Fuller, Matthew Winnington, Alex Dutton, and I've been Simon Sansbury. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. If you want to make sure you get notifications about upcoming shows and get to know when we're live, we normally broadcast live 6.27pm on a Sunday evening, then follow us on Facebook at Pompey Politics Podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Pompey Politics One. Please, if you'd like to, feel free to leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and you can even ask Alexa to play the podcast for you. Alexa. Play the latest episode of the Pompey Politics Podcast. Getting Pompey Politics Podcast from Amazon Music. Alexa. Play the latest episode. Stop. See? It's easy.